there's an episode where Lucy and Ethel are working at a chocolate factory. And they're making boxes of chocolates. And there's an assembly line, and they're doing a great job. They're making those boxes of chocolates, and it starts going a little fast, and they have an accident, so they put some in their pocket. Keeps getting out of control. The boxes of chocolate are not getting made. And that is how I like to explain DNA repair defects to my patients. I am so excited to have actually one of my good friends now that um, we actually know each other through the FIGS Retreat for mental health and it was great and we're both still feeling you know all the mental health benefits which is very important for all physicians especially those in cancer arguably and, and being biased. Dr. Anjali Malik is a board certified and fellowship trained breast diagnostic imaging specialist and she's also a women's health advocate uh, on social media as well as in news media. She's on the medical advisory committee for Bright Pink and she inspires women everywhere on their ovarian and breast related health and just women's health in general. Anjali, we're so excited to have you and thank you for being here. Absolutely, thank you for having me. So I love that you're passionate about, you know, kind of empowering women and men, again, 1%, about kind of what to do, how to do it, um, and some of the scary stuff when they say we need more testing. So that's a great place to start and tackle. People get mammograms, and I've always heard, is like, you know, so screening a mammogram, all of a sudden they said, we need more. So that's very scary for a lot of people, but I guess one of the first things we should talk about is what percentage of those people that need something more just after that first one, just to look better, what percentage is actually a problem? Because it's a very small percent, it's just kind of being more prudent, right? That's a really good question. So if we take, for example, a thousand people being screened, women, you know, cis, trans, everyone, a thousand people being screened, about 100 to 150 people will be called back from screening, and about 20 of those will end up needing a biopsy, and then five of those most likely will go on to have cancer. So. You start out big, you go a little smaller, but of that 100 to 150, a really small number of those end up having cancer. So the, the good thing about it is that the odds are in your favor. Um, it's always just about that second check, making sure and uh, making sure that we are taking care of everyone and eliminating any chance of there being cancer. For sure. So you said 5%, 5% of the 20% that need a biopsy will be positive, or is it 5% of the 150 uh, that are called back? No, so it's actually an absolute five. So of the 150 that'll be called back, five will go on to have cancer. So out of that thousand um, people screened, 100 to 150 get called back, 20 have a biopsy, five go on to have so cancer. So that's very important. So just so you know, if you get a call back, it's still not even, like it's still better than 95% chance, almost 98% chance that you will not be positive for cancer. It's just looking at something exactly. better, right? And the reason for that is because ideally you want to do the most minimal amount to make sure you're good. So that minimal, you know, mammogram, just a minimal, just the kind of your basic mammogram, what exactly is it? Is it x-ray? Is it like magnets? Is it, what is that, that, that mammogram that's happening that's a screening mammogram and they're very big on billing for screening versus diagnostic, etc. What is a mammogram? What is the general mammogram most people get? So a mammogram is an x-ray of the breast, and the standard mammogram is going to have four views, two views of each breast, one from top to bottom, and one from side to side to include the armpit, since that is an area that can either have breast cancer or um, have metastatic disease. And so these days, you might have heard of 3D mammograms or tomosynthesis, and I'm sure that's something that you were gonna bring up, but just in case, I'll go ahead and cover it. So in the old days, uh, which is, 
still includes the time that I trained, so I think that makes me old. Um, we did just 2D mammograms, which were just the picture, basically, right? So just one picture in this direction, just one picture in this direction of each breast. Like a, like a chest X-ray, like a two-view chest X-ray. You get one from the front, and ideally you get one from the side. Okay, that makes sense. Exactly. So it was like a two-view of each breast. But these days we have the 3D mammogram or tomosynthesis, which is kind of like a low-budget version of a CT. And what it does is it takes multiple views um, across different angles um, doing those two views. So you're still doing a top to bottom um, kind of movie of the breast and one from side to side. So, you know, a lot of women um, or, or those who have been screened in the past will be able to tell you that when they got called back, they were told, oh, it was just overlapping breast tissue. So those callbacks, so many of them that went on to scare people and give anxiety were actually just related to overlapping breast tissue. And this 3D mammography, which lets us look at the breast layer by layer, eliminates a lot of that, um, those false positive callbacks and also enables us to uh, detect small invasive breast cancer. So it increased the detection by about 30 to 40% and it decreased the callbacks significantly. So it's a great technology that we have and it is available most everywhere now it's actually mandated in several states to include like new york missouri texas um all over the country so that's is a screen uh, and this is a screening exam exactly so the only difference between a screening and a diagnostic examination is that screening is done for asymptomatic patients so they don't have any symptoms they're, they're just there for their routine checkup for their annual breast cancer screening which starts annually um at 40 for average risk um, and earlier if needed for high risk or, um, or any family history. And then diagnostic means that it's being done for a symptom, for example, a lump, a region of pain, uh, changes to the nipple or skin, or it's being done for example, for someone in the first five years after um, breast conservation therapy or um, a known gene mutation, things like right. that. Those are the main differences. So for those people, and there's a lot of, you know, people in community practices where TOMO is not offered, uh, or they may not know to ask, but they will now, thanks to our wonderful guest who's educating us all about these breast cancer screening techniques. But the places that TOMO is not available, how worried should a patient be that they're getting suboptimal screening? So, I mean, in comparison, yes, we know that 3D performs better than 2D. Um, but of course, for the, for the longest time, 2D was all that was available. It still does detect breast cancer. It still um, is able to reduce mortality. Annual screening reduces mortality by 40%. That said, um, women uh, and those being screened should be given access to 3D mammography. And if it's not available in a community center near you, I would strongly recommend um, finding out, working with your physicians to find out where you might have access to that. Um, and again, you know, this is why, where advocacy comes into play. Um, that's why we as physicians and then um, patients uh, and the public need to be taking charge of our overall collective public health to be ensuring that everyone has equal um, access to the greatest technology. For sure. Okay, so that kind of addresses the screening part. And we said like of a thousand or so, you know, a hundred have gotten their screening, TOMO, 2D, whatever. And now they're called that they need additional imaging. What is that mm -hmm. additional imaging usually involved? And what are some of the main reasons that they had to be called back? You already identified one, which was the overlapping breast, if it was not a tomography. Uh, right. What are some of the reasons that are not cancer that they require additional, you know, uh, basically investigation? And then what does that investigation involve? So when I'm looking at a screening mammogram, whether it's 2D or 3D, 
I'm looking to see what changes there are, what the breast pattern is. I'm comparing it to uh, prior mammograms, if any are available, and I'm making my assessment. And so um, an assessment of zero means incomplete, and all it means is I would like some kind of additional evaluation. Mm. And the things I'm calling um, screening mammograms back for are what we call asymmetry. And that asymmetry often does go on to be overlapping tissue even with the 3D mammography. Now the chances of that are much lower with 3D mammograms, but not zero. Um, it could be a mass, and that mass could, on additional imaging, go on to be a totally benign mass. So if someone, if you see on your report that it says there's a mass in the right breast, that's all that means. It says it means there is a mass, we're going to do further imaging to see what that mass is. It could go on to be a very benign, totally normal cyst. And probably well, right, according to the numbers. Right. Yeah, um, it could be a lymph node inside the breast, which are totally normal. Those are the glands that drain the fluid in our body. We can have them anywhere head to toe, including inside our breasts um, or in our underarm regions. And, um, or it could be calcifications. Now, microcalcifications are very common in the breast. Um, we see them in the breast for a lot of different reasons, most of which are benign. We keep a close eye on them because they can be an early sign of breast cancer. And we take extra images to sort of characterize them. On a screening mammogram, it's just going to say there are calcifications in the left or right breast, period. There will not be any, there shouldn't be any uh, characteristics defined because we need those magnification views um, to define those, and I'll, I'll talk about what those are in a minute. But so the, the screening mammogram report is, I wanna say intentionally vague, but not to be evasive. It's intentionally vague because we just need more information. All we know is there's something, and we need to figure out what it is. It's like, it's like those picture pages, right? Like one of these things is not like the other. We're just identifying the thing that's not like the other, and then we're gonna call patients back, do those extra uh, images, extra imaging, and see what it is. So what are we gonna do? Um, for many of the things, we are going to do additional mammogram pictures. And now I do have patients ask me all the time, well, did they not take good images the first time? That's not what it is. It's that we need more information. So our standard two views for most people are going to give us all the information that we need to be able to clear them um, for that year for breast cancer and saying, you know, you're good to go. We'll see you next year. But for some patients, we need to take additional views, either at different angles or of a focused part of the breast. That's called a spot compression view. So a normal mammogram might have a compression um, plate that's about this big. A focused spot compression will have a smaller one, and it'll allow us to really press into that one area. Of course, it's not fun, but it does eliminate a lot of the callbacks. Um, the other thing, like I mentioned with the calcifications, is a magnification view. Literally, imagine a magnification or a magnifying glass. That's kind of what we're doing, and we're getting all those characteristics to be able to say, these are round and totally uniform and normal, and we're, we're totally okay with these. These are totally benign calcifications. Or we're getting those, like, these are really suspicious looking, they're clustered, they're, you know, this, that, or the other. So we have all this lexicon, we have all these characteristics that we're looking for on those images. Now, for masses or for areas that are still there on those extra views, you might be told that you need an ultrasound. Not everyone needs an ultrasound. It's okay if you don't get one. Um, so that's you know, a big distinction. If it's just like something that is obscure, meaning like hard to really delineate, then that's right. usually just more pictures and more angles with uh, mammogram-ish technology. Right. But for masses, as a general rule, that's why you're getting ultrasound. You don't need to fear exactly. if, like, you got another mammogram coming in for additional testing. It means, like, well, there are they missing? Right. Is it sub? Is it sub? You know, evaluation? No, that's because that right. just makes more sense. Whereas an ultrasound is for masses or something. What was the other reason you said in addition to masses? Masses, or if it persisted on gotcha. that additional imaging, right. or if it's a 
you know, an axillary mass, or if there's changes to the skin, for example, like skin thickening or nipple changes, we might um, further evaluate it. So, um, and then that ultrasound, because it's a totally different technology, right? So you've got mammograms that are x-rays, they're using um, light particles to penetrate uh, the tissues and show us what the breast looks like inside. Uh, ultrasound is using sound waves and it also delineates the different tissues using those sound waves and it actually allows us to look inside masses so we can see if something is solid, we can see if it has fluid inside, we can look at its borders to see if it's nice, round, and smooth or if it's irregular. Um, and again, we can look to see, for example, if it's a lymph node, if it contains fat in the center of it. Now, I've had a lot of women who, when they come back to us year after year, they'll say, well, um, mammogram didn't find my cancer, ultrasound did. And while I'm not saying that's not possible, what what's many don't realize is that we don't do the ultrasound because the mammogram is bad. We do the ultrasound because we're like, oh, the mammogram detected something. Now we need to get this other tool out in our belt. So it's like, I'm not a handyman or woman, uh, as it were, but like we have a lot of different tools and tool belts, right? And it doesn't make, you know, just because one doesn't, do the entire job doesn't mean it's bad. It just means that they, they work in concert. So um, so mammogram is really good for screening. Ultrasound, um, its forte is a little bit more in diagnostic or focused imaging. Well, that makes sense. And I think one of the examples is like, you know, we basically, we, we recently bought a new house and you get an inspector, right? And then you have this basic yeah. idea <laughs> of like, of like, okay, these look good, these look don't, you know, and then somebody may say, when the inspector says something doesn't look right here with the AC or with the heating or the gassing, then you get a specialist and come and just get more diagnostic evaluation. Sometimes it turns out to be fine and not a reason not to get the house. And sometimes they find something that was pretty, you know, difficult to ascertain. You don't say, well, they would have, you know, it was them that found out the inspector. If everything checks out, then oftentimes you're not calling that specialist in. And then small, some small percentage of time or some percentage of time seems to be every time for us, there's something there that like wasn't told us to, to investigate. So in an ideal world, you know, if you're paying out of pocket, like same with everything else, like sure, full body MRIs, you know, every six months, like some doctors do apparently for screening and all this stuff right. just in general. But it totally right. makes sense. And an ultrasound, just so under, people understand, it sounds like it can be pretty darn good and, and in certain circumstances, certainly superior to an MRI. Everyone just wants to go straight to an MRI, but the, you could be doing an MRI for a cyst that you find out an ultrasound was a cyst and then you've right. avoided the MRI, you avoided the cost. Um, so there are some things that an ultrasound can characterize that are benign. Now with a mass mass that may be malignant, of course, MRI delineates more, but it's got very high cost. So everything is different. So, you know, we, we do things, and, and I like that example of the house inspection, but we do things for different reasons. And MRI um, is definitely when we're pulling out the big guns for either high risk screening, dense breast screening, or um, extensive disease workup right. um, or like for, you know, of course, something that you deal with is if your patient's um, already on chemotherapy and we're following their um, response. So, and I'm, we can definitely talk about high risk and dense breast screening, but I don't like to pit my modalities against each other. Um, I don't either, all... but I think people can insecure. Yeah, exactly. I'm just saying like, people right. will say like, they just don't yeah. ultrasound, why aren't they going straight to MRI? And the reason is, is right. to say, there are some benefits, you know, of one, so one to the other, the other, which is why it's like, it's not yeah. that just one is just hands down better for every reason, you know, it could be overkill. Right. Well, and you know, patients will ask me too, and this is uh, kind of similar to you using the house analogy. People will say, well, if, 
you know, MRI is better or if ultrasound is better, why don't we do that on everyone? And I kind of compare it to TSA screening. So, you know, everybody's bag goes through the conveyor belt and it's some very low budget um, form of like CT, right, that it's going into. Now, for most of them, they're able to clear and say, you're totally fine. And then for me, my hair straightener every time or my mom's, you know, aluminum foil wrapped Indian food because, you know, moms. Um, are always going to like go off like a light bulb and I'm going to get pulled to the side and they're going to search through the things. Now, obviously them searching through the bags is the most effective way for them to ensure that I don't have something dangerous. But if they did that on everybody, no one's flights would ever take off in addition to already what's happening with flights across the country. So, um, so, you know, so yes, um, there are some modalities that are better than others. It's a matter of what is effective, cost effective. Um, with that high efficacy, so high sensitivity, high specificity, um, you know, that has the numbers that is able to produce, but is easily accessible, quick, um, easily producible, things like that. So no, that's, that's, that's how we decide to use our different modalities. Yeah, I love it. So we touched on it. Everyone wants to hear about it. And it's probably, right. arguably, at least for sure, as it relates to breast cancer, my most common, you know, DM is... I was told I have, you know, dense breast. They'll say, well, let's, let's do one by one. First DM comes in, right? Because, by the way, if I didn't say it, Anjali is also very prominent on social media, has a lot of followers, and that's because she's putting out <laughs> good content and education that people just want to know and have a hard time getting information from. So, number one, you're going to answer the DMs. Uh, I'm going to give you the DM question, you can answer it in the end. Number yeah. one, I have dense breasts. I'm in my 20s. Shouldn't I be getting MRIs, you know, now every year? So a couple different um, elements in that question. So there is no breast cancer um, screening done for anyone in their 20s. Right. Uh, in the 20s, here are the things that I recommend to my patients. Number one, know your family history. It sounds like in this situation there is no family history. Family history does not just include breast cancer. It includes ovarian cancer, colon cancer, pancreatic cancer, thyroid cancer, melanoma. Um, when we start seeing you know, a number of those on the same side, we question genetics. You had a great um, session with Dina DNA, who I love. Um, and so you know, it's not just about breast cancer history, although of course that is going to um, be most often the most common and important one. Secondly, um, women uh, or you know, my patients should start their physical exams in their 20s. Uh, if there is anything to indicate that the patient um, is uh, a candidate for genetic testing, I absolutely recommend that. And I recommend that and a risk assessment be done before the age of 30. Um, reason being, uh, if annual screening for those of average risk starts at 40, uh, high-risk screening can start as early as 25, most often 30. And so I want my patients to have that risk assessment, to know if they have a genetic mutation, to be able to set those protocols and get them set up for life. So the answer to in my 20s is know your family history, do your risk assessment, establish a screening protocol, which you know most often is going to be see you when you're 40. And um, what is a risk and assessment and how do you qualify for that? Or does anyone? Anyone can do it. So there's a, a tire acoustic is the most common uh, risk assessment score that we're using. Um, it is the most discriminant of the different ones that are out there. It takes in a lot of different factors. So um, age, menstrual history, so um, onset of menses, birth control history or oral contraceptive history, uh, pregnancy history, family history, breast density, things like that. So breast density, you're really only ever going to be able to address once you've had 
some kind of breast imaging because breast imaging is the only way to tell density. So if your gynecologist will you know, do an exam and say your breasts are dense, that might be true in the setting of a physical exam. It's not true in the setting of breast imaging. So tell us, um, what is that unit or what is the, like, what are the metrics that, you know, like, kind of like BIRADS, right? BIRADS is suspicious. Five is definitely known cancer. Four is highly suspicious. One is all good. What is the equivalent of that for density? What's the scale? So we have four um, categories. Uh, the, they are basically um, going from least dense to most dense. And density is a proportion. So it's not a score, it's not a thing, it's just a proportion. So one is gonna be almost entirely fatty replaced, two is gonna be scattered fibroglandular densities, three is gonna be heterogeneously dense, and four is gonna be extremely dense. So these two, the last two, heterogeneously and extremely dense, are when we start talking about breast density, when we start talking about um, heterogeneously dense can obscure uh, the detection of small masses, extremely dense can um, obscure cancers and does put women at increased risk for the development of breast cancer. These are the categories in which we're going to talk about maybe some kind of complementary screening. So back to the initial um, you know, slide into the DM's question of should I get an MRI in my 20s? No, unless you have a known genetic mutation. Um, you know, for example, mom had uh, BRCA and cancer at 32, then you would start some kind of imaging at 25. Um, those are nuanced questions, but end of the day, I recommend knowing your family history and having a risk assessment with your physician, whether that's your primary care or your um, gynecologist, to know what your screening protocol should be. For those who don't have access to that type of care, uh, I am a, um, I was a medical advisor with Bright Pink, which has shifted its focus, but they do still have assessyourrisk.org, um, which does allow, um, you know, does empower everyone to be able to have that knowledge in their hands. You can take that score then to a physician to be able to say, hey, it looks like I might be elevated. I'd like to do this with you to ensure that that's correct and then um, move on from there. So if someone slid into your DMs though when they were in their 30s or 40s and they had that question, um, I could address that a little bit better. So assuming that they had had some kind of breast imaging, which is what established that they have dense breast tissue, that category three and four, the heterogeneously dense and extremely dense is when we start saying, consider additional screening. It is by no means mandatory. It is optional at this point. Um, in, in most places other than Connecticut, which absolutely requires uh, women um, have a whole breast bilateral screening ultrasound. And that is actually because the um, first woman who started the whole breast density reporting movement, um, who actually recently passed away a couple of years ago from, um, I think a myelodysplastic disorder from her uh, initial cancer treatment. She was diagnosed with breast cancer stage four um, just a few months after having had a normal mammogram. And when she said, how is this possible? They said, well, you have really dense breast tissue. It just hid the breast cancer. Um, no one was wrong in that situation. Uh, I, I've not seen her imaging, but I can uh, imagine the scenario, and I'm sure you can as well. And that is why we, that is why her movement started um, breast density reporting, which is now done almost universally across the United States. Um, I, I haven't checked the latest, you know, what states might be still lagging on that, but most uh, states and including the District of Columbia do report breast density to women to be able to inform them um, in case they might need additional imaging to have those conversations with their doctors. So what is, so what is so unique about Connecticut compared to everywhere else? 
that's where she was when she started that. But what movement. what what is what is? Oh, movement? so then I think I think they just you know because that's where the movement started. They then uh, uh, mandated bilateral breast screening ultrasound in addition to screening mammogram on any women who are detected uh, found to have dense breast tissue. So anyone with found to have that fourth category dense uh, mm -hmm. in Connecticut, it's to be accompanied by an ultrasound because of that's very inspiring. Do you, do you remember her name? Nancy. Um, Nancy is her first name. And if I were to like get on Twitter or, or uh, Instagram really quickly, I'd be able to find her last name. Um, happy to do that after the episode. Um, but if you go to like, are you dense or densebreast.org, they probably even have like, you know, maybe like Capella. something in memoriam. Um, Repel. Exactly. That's what I was going to say, but I was like, it doesn't sound right. So when we talk about dense breast screening, so 3D mammography was a game changer. At the time when she was starting this movement, we were still doing 2D mammograms, which we've already talked about. They, you know, obs could obscure, they could have overlapping de uh, breast tissue. You couldn't find small invasive breast cancers. 3D mammography can um, help, you know, um, see the breast tissue layer by layer. However, we still know in, you know, some cases they're still going to be uh, decreased, not zero, but decreased um, uh, sensitivity and specificity. So what are the options? So if a mammogram to include uh, 3D mammography detects six to eight breast cancers per 1,000 women screened, the bilateral breast ultrasound can add up to three additional um, breast cancers detected. Most of those studies were done when we were doing 2D mammography, and in fact, I was part of one during my fellowship. Um, however, ultrasound can be an option, and of course, it's a much more accessible, um, cheaper um, option than MRI. However, MRI is the big guns, no questions asked. It can detect up to 15.9 breast cancers per 1,000 women screened. So it can, in many cases, double and or more um, your level of breast cancer detection. It has the highest sensitivity. It does have, it does have false positives. It can be expensive. Um, it does involve uh, contrast. And they're, you know, for women with, um, renal disease that can be a problem as well as there can be some size um, restrictions and then issues with claustrophobia and anxiety which can be addressed um, but still it is not the most accessible so that's when we talk about you know we're not going to open everyone's suitcase up um, but if it makes sense to that is that is the biggest baddest option that we have dm number two is I have dense breasts. I'm told I have dense breasts at least. I'm in my 30s. I'm 35. I'm out in the community. I do not have a family history. Should I be worried? What should I tell my doctor? And I, the M2 can actually be from primary care. I get a lot of primary care doctors asking and, and practitioners, mm -hmm. what do I do? They have dense breasts um, and they're concerned about it. What's the next step? And is it linked, which we kind of said yes with the risk calculator, of course, is always a component. So there is an increase. It's not like having a BRCA mutation, but it's, you know, right. it's, it's just, yeah. it's something uh, along with, you know, even weight and obesity that is correlated. Right. So right. what we are the next steps on someone that's really concerned in 35? So again, uh, I wonder why someone at 35 was doing screening and would have that conversation with them. Um, but well, usually uh, they speak vaguely. So they, they say that, you know, they're doing right. self-exams or like, you know, a primary doctor did right. it or OBGYN. So they're getting their their, um, you know, pap smear or whatnot, and then they sometimes, uh, OB-GYNs will do a, right. a breast exam and say, you have dense breasts, fibro dense breasts. Right, fibrocystic, right? The, the, the garbage term of fibrocystic breasts. I think um, a baseline mammogram is certainly an option 
for women in their 30s if they want to establish what their breast density is or if there's some concern. Or many doctors will just do one at 35 or 37. Um, that's been a tradition around uh, my area, at least where I practice. If there is an actual concern for lump, of course, that would get a diagnostic exam and a proper workup. Um, but otherwise, if there is no family history and it's just sort of vague, dense, fibrocystic breasts on physical exam without any focused concern, my recommendation is to you know continue with annual um, clinical breast exam, monthly self-breast exam, and I will course detail that uh, and then to initiate annual screening mammography at the age of 40. So when it comes to self-exam uh, you know the really catchy phrase is to feel it on the first. Um, I am not a proponent of that. I love that it reminds women to do their exam but I uh, believe in monthly mid-cycle exams. Now of course a lot of women are on IUDs with all the reproductive everything that's going on right now with reproductive rights, that is for many the smart decision. Um, for those who do have a cycle, monthly mid-cycle is around day 15 for your average uh, 28 to 30 day cycle. So day one is your first day of bleeding, day 28 or 30 is the day before that cycle starts. Day 15 is when your breasts are going to be the least hormonally influenced and when you're going to get the best assessment of what your breast tissue feels like and the least uh, of those cyclic lumps. So when doing an exam, and I have an entire video uh, reel of this on my Instagram, um, I recommend women go from their sternum to their um, axilla, their underarm, their um, just below their clavicle to below their breast tissue to start um, uh, away and roll towards the nipple or start at the nipple and roll away. Um, the point being you want to see if something moves with you because mobility can most often be considered benign. Something that's fixed might be a little bit more concerning. Um, and then our normal tissue might just like roll with us anyway and not actually end up being a mass as opposed to just sticking our fingers down and being like, oh wow, that feels like a lump. Um, so for your average woman in her 20s and 30s. I'm, I'm talking about a monthly mid-cycle exam. For those who are on IUDs, pick a day of the month and do it every month. So if it is the first, that's great. If it's the 15th, if it's the 30th, whatever it is. Perfect. So all of that is extremely helpful. And I think gives some people hopefully some insight um, on, on you know the different screening stuff that exists and what investigation means, why it's prudent, but also not something to be terribly afraid of. I know that's easier said than done, of course. Um, now. We were talking about, before we got on the podcast, about this cryotherapy. So I sometimes get DMs, so yeah. DM number three, DM number four. What is yeah. this strategy that people are using to go ahead and put in um, basically a treatment, like deliver a treatment to a lesion, and when should this be considered? So breast imaging and cancer therapy is of course a team approach right it's there's not just one person and you know the oncologist isn't the only person i'm not the only person as the um, breast imaging radiologist it's not just the surgeon so most often women who are diagnosed with breast cancer it's been found by one of us either from a screening mammogram that moved to a diagnostic and a biopsy or something detected by the patient or their physician on physical exam that then went on to be detected by imaging um, once we have established a diagnosis through a minimally invasive image-guided biopsy under mammogram, ultrasound, or MRI, um, we're able to um, most oftentimes do an MRI for extent of disease workup, um, or if, 
in our younger or more dense-breasted um, women. Uh, when I worked in North Carolina, not everyone would get an MRI because some tissue patterns, it was pretty evident, um, and or, for example, uh, postmenopausal breast cancers um, in an 80-year-old woman who has not very dense breast tissue and um, has very low-grade disease. Uh, for example, those don't necessarily get MRI imaging. Then it's presented at some kind of multi-modality um, breast conference, exactly, Tamer Board, where we discuss the options. So if you have, for example, you know, a 90-year-old woman who whose cancer was either detected by screening or, you know, we get a lot of these like nursing home, doctor felt, you know, there was an obvious mass, et cetera. Um, they might not be good surgical candidates either because of their cardiopulmonary risk. They're, you know, so there's some sort of situation that might place them at risk for anesthesia or right. um, healing. So to summarize, those people considering cryotherapy, if you're young and, and, and you know, want the most non-invasive, it is for sure, right. by all standard data currently, inferior to doing standard of care management, which is doing a lumpectomy right. uh, plus radiation versus doing a uh, mastectomy and maybe foregoing radiation. In general, those are the two ways that all breast cancer should be managed you know, under the age right. of 75 and, and no, you know, glaring contraindications. Now this question right. I get a lot, and it would be really helpful if you have some insight, which is when women are, or men are getting, or any individual is getting a lumpectomy, and then they have a decision to make on whole breast radiation versus mm -hmm. using a device or other means to get basically intra you know mammary or intra breast radiation delivered which is way shorter they don't have to go for six weeks to the radiation doctor there's a whole bunch of stuff that definitely mm -hmm. sound more uh appealing or favorable with life stuff now i had a couple of attendings which was years ago in fellowship that said the only thing is sanjay if they had a lumpectomy it impairs or makes the imaging more difficult for future cancers do you do the best of your knowledge and if there's no literature that's great too because i know it's still developing but should that be a concern of someone that's considering rather than a whole breast, not talking about recurrence? Now, that's, that's a different conversation. But just in the capacity of, will I have an impaired ability to see a second or breast cancer or recurrence if I do the one that's in the breast versus whole breast? So we definitely see a lot of intraoperative uh, radiation therapy um, in the DMV uh, where I practice. Um, it's a pretty popular technique with a lot of our breast cancer centers. Um, I, I don't think it's impaired my ability to detect breast cancer, but I will say, for example, just just the other day I was reading an MRI um, on a, a prior breast conservation patient, and you are getting signal dropout um, around some of those devices. So the, the the one that looks like a long wire, so not the um, the Biosorb, which is one of them, not to be vendor specific, but it um, it does. Um, it does allow me to get a little bit better imaging, whereas some of these these other ones do cause signal dropout. Um, but mammographically, I feel like I'm seeing um, sonographically. You know, I understand why patients would choose that um, if it, uh, you know, has better um, quality of life, which is huge for, for sure. our patients, right? Not and the toxicities of the whole breast radiation and, you know, the, right. the field and if it's over the heart or not. There's a bunch of things to consider. Right. Um, yeah, so heart and lungs. So, definitely not yeah. just recurrence. Yeah. And then, speaking on the same subject, mental health, self-image, very important things. If somebody was to opt for bilateral breast implants, and I know there's two mm -hmm. situations, somebody may get, for whatever reason, if they can afford it, just like 
bilateral mastectomies if they have high family risk or have some mutation and then get their prostheses, or they just get, um, what do they call it, enhancements, so they get like bilateral prostheses, they you know, size A. How much literature-wise does that reduce the chance of finding a breast cancer? Let's say they didn't get mastectomies. They just had uh, augmentation bilaterally. Um, is it pretty significant? So you're saying this isn't a breast reconstruction or just in the average? Um, this is an average uh, person wanting to right. get, um, you know, they have smaller size so, breasts and they want to get um, sure. augmentation. Yeah. So my recommendation, uh, often unsolicited, but my unsolicited recommendation to patients looking for augmentation is that um, uh, retropectoral implants um, do not obscure tissue in most women. So your prepectoral implants, that's the one that's in front of the muscle, we do know, we do know that um, does significantly impair the ability to perform the mammogram because in women with implants, we're, we're getting um, minimum four views per breast. We're getting one with the implant in view and one with the implant displaced. And so on top the muscle, of the pecs, you're saying that it does impair, but if you get augmentation below, you get it under the pegs. So the next DM question, if I get breast augmentation, I hear that mm -hmm. there's, what you were saying earlier, is that there's a difference in where it is in relation to the pec muscles on uh, if things will be obscured, but obscured or not with detecting breast cancers with screening, correct? So, yeah, exactly. Above the muscle is definitely going to limit ability. And then there are some women, even if it's um, behind the muscle, for example, if it gets uh, capsular contraction, things like that, those are complications that can happen later. But for the most part, women who have implants that are behind the breast, it can um, obscure or it can limit our ability to image the posterior aspects of the tissue, but significantly less than those that are in front of the muscle. Okay. Um, the other thing is like for women who are getting reductions or mammopexy, so mammopexy is a lift, reduction is of course um, removal of tissue, um, that can cause some changes inside the breast, um, you know, women might just see the T-shaped scar that goes um, inferior to the nipple and then in the inframammary or under the breast region, but really they're, they're taking tissue from the entire breast. Imagine if you've seen liposuction, it's a similar concept. Uh, I'm not a breast surgeon nor a plastic surgeon, but similar concept and so we're going to see changes throughout the breast. And so I do recommend to women, if they have had any kind of breast um, enhancement augmentation or plastic surgery, for at least the first mammogram after that surgery to consider doing a diagnostic because it's very, it's most common to be called back after that first year. So it's not something that they need to do lifelong. They don't always need right. to get diagnostic. So this get that baseline of like what changed, where's the scar tissue, what, yeah. how does this look different? So that that could be the comparison for interval right. changes when you see something new in the next year and so. Yeah, and also really good to make sure that before you're doing that surgery, you've had you know, your mammogram very close to that. Oh, um, because then it can sort of help us, it can help us know like, okay, they had their mammogram March, 2022. They had the surgery March 20, you know, in that same month. And then here we are seeing them a year later. And yeah, it's most likely- That's a good tip. Changes. So the tip is get the mammogram as close as you can. Full of, full of knowledge here, dropping knowledge That's it. And all what's day. Your, give us your handle one more time, just so not the last At, one. Yeah, at Anjali Malik MD on Instagram, Twitter, uh, TikTok, with very minimal following as compared to the OnkDoc here. <laughs> well, we love it. I love watching. So that's that's a very helpful. And do you know if there is any difference on what you use for augmentation? Because I know that some people use like an auto. They use their own, you know, subcutaneous mm -hmm. tissue or adipose tissue in their hips or their belly and then put it into the breast. Is that actually more favorable or does it not really matter since it's the scarring 
that you're creating to get in there that's mostly the issue. So we're seeing that more with breast reconstruction in a um, post-mastectomy uh, patient for breast cancer right. or... Um, Which, by the way, or, is covered with a lot of insurance companies, so please, like, you know, a lot of people don't offer it uh, if there's right. not a plastic surgeon in town, but if it's, you know, you're young right. and you want to get... Uh, or you're having to get a mastectomy or bilateral for high risk for genetics, it is definitely something that's oftentimes covered by insurance to be able to actually get your own tissue replaced uh, in those areas. And, it, and they hate, my plastic surgeon friend hates when I say a tummy tuck plus, you know, breast augmentation because there's not a tummy tuck. But like, yeah, you know. that's not the goal. But yes, so yes, so there's tram flap, which is the transverse abdominis, uh, or transverse, sorry, yeah. Uh, and then there's deep flap, and then there's a lat flap. Lat flap is not as common anymore, but it was when people were taking uh, the back tissue. So there is a chance of recurrence in those um, at the anastomosis. The anastomosis is where we're connecting the tissue that's been moved to the uh, minimal chest. Uh, wall um, tissue and or just the pectoralis musculature that's there. So those do still need to be screened as though they were real breasts, um, either by uh, minimal physical exam annually, um, but also many, um, uh, especially those who have only gotten one side um, uh, reconstructed will have still a bilateral mammogram. And I do want to point out that uh, mastectomy is not always the answer. Of course, you know this, uh, and, and those of us in the cancer community know this, but you know, with um, Angelina Jolie in the, I think, mid-2000s, being um, diagnosed with, now I can't remember if she has BRCA1 or 2, she had a prophylactic mastectomy. That made sense for her and her family history, and it was something that right. um, would significantly impact her um, her lifespan. Right. However, for many women, that is not the answer. And so um, if you're being offered lumpectomy, it's not um, necessarily subpar therapy. Oh, yeah, uh, for sure. And yeah. very important so to either see a geneticist if like, you want more information right. and you are in a community that can tell you very specifically statistics-wise, you know, right. and they can be done virtually. Like you said, we had Dina previously, and, and there's just a lot yeah. of doing that. Um, so that's important. If you ever feel like you need more information in the community, right and yeah. they, you don't have the specialist in genetics or a plastic surgeon specialist or a breast can, you know, surgical oncologist specialist, always like right. seek the resources before making life changes decisions so you feel right. good about it. Like feeling good about something, oftentimes regardless right. of outcome is extremely important for overall you know, long-term health, mental health. And oh, whatever. absolutely. I definitely think a good working relationship is important with your you know, surgeon, oncologist, radiologist, et cetera. But, but what I do want people to know is that more is not always better right sometimes more it's just more right so the recovery the chance for um, complications uh, risk etc so so we we always take that into consideration when we're making recommendations which at the end of the day are just recommendations right so you know patients are free to do what they would like with their own bodies which is absolutely what they should be able to do but um, but we do you know based on um, outcomes and outcomes, uh, literature seeing you know thousands of people in the same exact situation with the same properties right. and seeing what happens that's where the recommendations come right. from and i hope people can appreciate right. that on radiation this that and the other it's like basically more or less exactly the same situation we see right. if it actually helps survival or doesn't and that's really how cancer management is in general yeah and i like to tell patients too that it's breast cancer um, treatment is not one size fits all so just because you know, with breast cancer being as common as it is, people will say, well, the woman in my office got this or the, you right. know, my grandmother got that. And, and, and that 
was hopefully the absolute best treatment for that person. But um, it's based on disease, age, uh, you know, of course, so you know things. all this. But um, yeah, so so many factors and we, we try to make, uh, when well, we, we do, I mean, we practice precision medicine. So it's all about the individual patient. Right. I'm so glad you said that. And also too, like an example with what we were saying with the calculators, the reason we ask about the, you know, the onset of, of when your cycle started and then where you they end early or late is because you have this turnover. And we always talk on this podcast. If you haven't listened to previous episodes, I encourage you to. Cancer is a, is a product of, you know, turnover over time because the turnover right. meaning like dead cells die replicate make new ones that's where mutations happen and cancers are often right. a series of unfortunate mutations over a, a series of time which is why you get your pap smears which is why there's dcis it means like it's getting there it just needs one or two more favor favorable or unfavorable for us mutations to then have invasive right. features that are turned into an invasive cancer so on that same notion, if you're having more cycles, you know, breast tissue swells up and then it comes down and then all these things, that's what that, that turnover is where the chances go up. And that's why also after having more than two kids, you know, that's obviously nine months, nine to 10 months a piece where somebody's not having cycles and then Right. then you can have, have more, you know, cycling arrest when you're breastfeeding, though not all women do. So those are all things that play a part into it. So yeah, absolutely. This has been yeah. so just edifying and I hope people feel more comfortable. They know where to find you. Um, do you, you know, I get articles a lot on the DMs, you know, notion about like the newest ways to screen. Well, I hear there's something you could inject and it can just light up and tell you exactly where it is. Uh, in inside the whole radiology world what is if yeah. anything something that y'all that you all are really seeing may be something that you know is more precision based or for the most part is that hey if it if it looks you know sketchy that's really the most important thing and then we have a you know a workflow to figure out if it's you know really sketchy or if it's something that's avoidable sort of answering your question but not i will say that uh, i get a lot of dms about thermography and that is not a thing it does not detect breast cancer it's not fda approved um and i don't recommend it okay at all. great so thermography so, so no thermography no thermograms um number two yeah so you know we obviously use all the tools in our belt and we're always um, excited about new ones being developed uh, it does matter what I had mentioned before about access. It's still got to be quick, uh, you know, easily accessible, uh, easily reproduced to be able to make sure that everyone is having access and that we are, in fact, detecting breast cancer um, uh, it, across the population. So one thing that is kind of popular right now, there are some new products out there. Uh, artificial intelligence is, you know, always the buzzword when you when you talk about radiology and cancer detection, and there um, has long existed computer aided detection uh, in the AI world uh, to enhance my ability to detect breast cancer. But what is now um, coming onto the market and, and still somewhat in its pilot stages is um, the ability to predict breast cancer development. So there are some products on the market that are um, looking at tissue patterns and detecting whether um, or determining whether a breast cancer will develop in a five to 10 year timeline. So that is something that I think is exciting. Uh, you know, do I think it's, you know, real deal ready for prime time? Um, you know, that remains to be seen, yeah. but certainly That's interesting. more information. Yeah, and it's a concept that, you know, is in a lot of cancers because it's not just the turnovers, but a lot of times right. it's the environment, and that's why pancreatic cancer is it's so difficult to treat, is because it, it uses this microenvironment to really hijack some of your own cells and things like that, as well right. as 
the settings, right, of like inflammation. That's why like H. pylori can cause like a mole lymphoma. And if you treat H. pylori, it can actually just go away because the environment plays a role in the production of cancers as well. And there's a lot of stuff. And if you haven't listened to the previous podcast, we get into all of that in a couple of them. I'm talking about how right. they, how that plays a, a major part. So I'm really glad you said that. Yeah. Well, this was an absolute pleasure. Again, they can find you on social media uh, at Anjali Malik MD, correct? Yeah, right. Anjali Malik MD. And that's also my website. That's our website.com. I checked that out beforehand. And then uh, you're in the D.C. area, so if somebody does want to see you or a consultant or has some disposition in being able to, to you know, do you do, do, so do diagnostic uh, radiation, or excuse me, to do diagnostic radiologists outside of like being bedside to do the biopsy. Do they actually do consults, like in a clinic, or is it mostly just behind the scenes? I see patients. I see patients all day, every go. day, um, most days. So unless I'm reading a screening mammogram or breast MRI, I'm usually patient facing, and so we are seeing them for their diagnostics. In my practice, we do our own breast ultrasounds. We do image guided biopsies. Um, yeah, and then we also do uh, second. Um, second opinion, outside consultation, things like that. So certainly an option. Um, also, as a side note on your um, cell turnover, just one little tidbit that I like to help my patients understand is um, this might be too old for you because you are a youngin, but um, the I Love Lucy, there's an episode where Lucy and Ethel are working a, at a chocolate factory and they're making boxes of chocolates and there's an assembly line and they're doing a great job. They're making those boxes of chocolates and it starts going a little fast and they have an accident. So they put some in their pocket, but it just like keeps getting out of control. They're like putting in it, they're you know, eating it, they're putting it in their pockets. The boxes of chocolates are not getting made. And that is how I like to explain genetic defects or DNA repair defects to my patients is that we're chugging along, we're making those chocolate boxes and all of a sudden it just gets a little off kilter and the boxes are not being made. That's great. I think I've actually heard that from someone maybe in a slightly different capacity, but on this podcast, actually, I could be wrong, but that's a very interesting analogy. I, I shared that. it with Dina. So if Dina shared that with you, I'm going to be mad. I think it was <laughs> Dina. I really do think it was Dina. I could be wrong. <laughs> Dina and I did a podcast and we had, or we might have done an IG Live and we had this exact same conversation. So okay. it's okay. If everyone is spreading the gospel, I'm okay with it. Yeah, in there's whatever. a lot of that on TikTok and stuff. I mean, you, it's literally your exact post with a different person, you know, but I, I've seen that yeah. a lot of myself. Yeah. But all yeah. that matters is getting education out there. Well, thank you so exactly. much. And um, if you want to learn more, you know where to find uh, Dr. Anjali. And we appreciate you. Thank you.